you know, you, you'll hear the argument, no, Peter's not the mm-hmm. rock. Peter's faith is the rock. Or yeah. Jesus is the rock, and he rolls my blues away, as the old song goes. Hello and welcome to another pedagogical episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt, he's Ken, and uh, both of us came from various Protestant Christian backgrounds. Uh, I was a Wesleyan Arminian, he was a Reformed kind of guy. Former pastor, in Ken's case, former just, uh, um, I worked at Christian bookstores and stuff, in my case. But either way... We both unexpectedly ended up Catholic, and we've been talking about some of the reasons for that so that um, hopefully at least a couple people won't think we're mm-hmm. as crazy as they thought that we were before. So, Ken, are you ready to talk more about Peter today? Yes, I'm ready to talk more. All right. And, and um, I want to begin by mentioning something. At the Coming Home Network, we sometimes play a game or we sometimes have a show in which we talk about verses in the Bible that we never saw you know, ver- not meaning verses we never actually read, but verses that during the time before our life as Catholics, we just sort of read through, but we but we didn't see them. Um, passages that, in a sense, became bright with meaning only after we began to read them in the light of Catholic teaching and, and tradition. And by the way, if you go and, to chnetwork.org, you can find all kinds mm-hmm. of articles and examples of verses that certain people verses never saw. Verses we never saw, okay. So, um, but we're going to hit a well, big we're going to be today. looking today. We're going to be looking at one of them that was is really one of the most embarrassing for me, and that is the, the classic passage in Matthew sixteen verses thirteen through eight. The "You are Peter" passage, and upon this rock I will build my church. Um, as you and I left off last week, of course, our series is about scripture, tradition, and magisterium. We're in the section on magisterium, and we're in the section beginning to talk about Peter and the papacy, where we will spend a few weeks. Um, well, as we left off. We were asking this question, what lies behind Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them paying so much attention to Peter in their gospel narratives? What lies behind Luke, the author of the book of Acts, paying so much attention to Peter in his narrative of the early church? Um, Is it just coincidence that in both the gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, Peter appears clearly as ranking first among the 12 as being the most important of the 12 apostles from the earliest days of the church. And again, I I mentioned last week, it strikes me um, in a special way because the gospel authors are sitting down decades after the events that they're recording, 30, 40, 50 years after these events. And so this gives us a window into their mindset at that time. As they look back on the events of Jesus' life and the life of the disciples, Luke, the life of the early church, they see Peter as being someone that they need to talk about constantly. And all with the that, time. Uh, you know, Ken, it's not enough for them to just say, um, in the way that they present the narrative, that Peter's in charge. Okay, we get that. He's outspoken. Yeah. He's the leader. He may be the president of the apostolic men's club, right? Yeah. We can ex- we can all say that. But there are things that are being said about Peter, and you're going to get into some of them today, that go a lot deeper than just saying he was the yeah. spokesperson for the Twelve. 
or he was the loudest one. Right. Or, or, or even or he, was, he the was the one who sat next to Jesus at the front of the table at certain Pharisee yeah. dinners. Although many people, I think, would reduce it to that he was the most colorful. That's it. He, he, he talked more and all that, and he's the most colorful, so he's there. But we're asking the question, why in the Gospels and the Acts does he appear like that? And as we look today at Matthew 16, 13 through 19, I said 18, I think, um, an answer to these questions begins to appear. That is why he's presented this way. And this is what we're going to look at today. Okay, so let's go to the scene quickly. On their travels... Jesus has led his disciples north of the region of Galilee in the Sea of Galilee into an area uh, referred to as Caesarea Philippi, where there was, and there still is, a massive rock outcropping about 200 feet high, about 500 feet wide, on the top of which there had been built a temple in honor of Caesar. And my understanding is that deeper in history, there had been a temple to the god Pan, but at the time... Um, there was a temple to Caesar. So you've got this giant rock face, again, 500 feet wide, about 200 feet high, with a temple on the top to Caesar. It's referred to, the town is referred to as Caesarea Philippi. And it's with this background that Jesus stops and he asks his disciples a question. Jesus says, or Jesus asks, who do men say that the Son of Man is? Or who are people saying that I am? The disciples at this point began to repeat what they've heard on the street. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others are saying that you're Elijah come back from the dead. Others are saying Jeremiah or some other one of the prophets. It's at this point that Jesus directs the question to them personally. Jesus looks at them and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say? I mean, I understand this is what people are saying or all kinds of suggestions floating around, but who do you say? Now, it's not clear, Matt, how each of the 12 disciples would have answered this question if, if each had spoken up in turn. We only know how one of the disciples answered it. In verse 16, we read, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, that is the anointed one, the, the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of the living God. And at this point in the narrative, Jesus addresses Simon directly. In the presence of the eleven, he addresses Simon directly. And Jesus makes a series of statements that are truly remarkable about the role that Simon is going to play in the church that he's come to establish. And as we work through the passage today, this is what I want to do, Matt. I want to I want our readers, our I mean our our listeners, our viewers, to notice six ways in which Jesus presents Simon Peter to the other disciples, to the 11, and also to us. And by the way, I want to give credit where credit's due. The structure of the way I've outlined the material today is something that I borrowed from uh, Professor John Bergsma, professor of New Testament at Franciscan University in Steubenville, um, from his book, uh, New Testament basics for Catholics. I thought he laid it out in an interesting way, and I borrowed the structure of it. And yes. he does a fantastic job. If you're looking for questions of typology, if you're looking for oh, yeah. a whole bunch of just deeper things behind what you think you see in the New Testament, but you want to go layer after layer, mm-hmm. he also has a wonderful thing, uh, a commentary he did with Dr. Brant Petrie. So yeah, anything from Bergsma, worth checking out. Yeah, I like. I like very much. Okay, so six ways in which Simon is presented to the 11 and to us. 
The first is this. Jesus presents Peter in the role of a prophet, first of all. And this is from verse 17. And Jesus answered him, that is, when Simon said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now, of course, Simon's father's name was John, not Jonah. And so we ask, why does Jesus refer to him as Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, the well-known Old Testament prophet? And the most likely answer is simply that Jesus is wanting at this point to emphasize the prophetic nature of Simon's pronouncement. In other words, the knowledge, he's saying, the knowledge you have, Simon, the knowledge you have of who I am, of my true identity as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is not a knowledge that you came to by human means. This is something that was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And so Jesus presents Simon as acting at this point in the role of a prophet. But that's just the beginning. (laughs) So we'll roll forward. Jesus also presents Peter in this passage as the patriarch, I will even say as the chief patriarch of the new covenant people of God, the church. That is, Peter will assume the role in the New Testament that Abraham and Israel had in the Old Testament. And let me uh, explain this. Um, We get this from the very fact of Jesus changing Peter's name, okay? From the fact of the name change, I think this arises. Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, okay? He looks at someone whose name is Simon, and he says, you are Peter, which means rock, but we'll get to that in a moment. You are Peter. Okay, why is Jesus changing Simon's name? I mean, he doesn't change the name of any of the other 12 disciples. I mean, he comes up later with a nickname for James and John, calling them the sons of thunder, but this is a nickname, okay? In, in the case of Simon, Jesus actually changes his name so that for the rest of his life, he is known as Peter. And by the way, there's no evidence in ancient Greek of the name Peter ever having been used as a name. Okay, so Jesus is creating a new name, you know, and, um, and he's changing his name. Okay, so why? Why does he change his name? And I, I think that if we go back to the Old Testament, we begin to understand why. Because it turns out, Incidentally, I'll say, it turns out that that the two most important patriarchs of the old covenant people of God, Abraham and Israel, well, they just happened to be men whose names were changed by God. Abram's name was changed to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude because of the promise of God that I will make you a father of many nations. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which in the Hebrew appears to mean something like one who strives with God. And I'm reading from Genesis 32, verse 28. Then he said, Your name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So Israel means one who strives with God and, at least in Jacob's case, prevails. So so again, Matt, here we have not just two patriarchs, but the two most important patriarchs of the old covenant people of God, Abraham and Israel, and they both happened to be men whose names God changed. And I believe that within the context of salvation history, within this biblical context, when Jesus changes Simon's name, 
this isn't a small thing. Jesus is essentially saying, Simon, just as Abraham and Israel were chosen to be the chief patriarchs of the earthly Israel, I am choosing you. I've chosen you. You will be the chief patriarch of the new covenant people of God, the spiritual Israel. Yeah. Peter will, in essence, be the father of a new people. You know, there's a Franciscan friend of mine uh, who jokes that in this moment when Jesus says to uh, Simon, Simon Bar-Jonah, you know, I say to you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and that in that moment he changes his name to Rocky Johnson, right? Uh, because, <laughs> you know, the Simon son of John thing. So, so Jesus presents Peter in the role of prophet. Jesus presents Peter in the role of patriarch. Um, but he's not done. There is more. Thirdly, in this passage, Jesus presents Peter as the foundation stone of the new covenant temple that he's building. Again, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock. You are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is something I didn't understand either until I came to understand more of the Old Testament context and Jewish tradition as well. So we need to look within the Old Testament context on this one as well. The center of worship for the Jewish people, the old covenant people of God, was the temple that had been built by Solomon. This is where God dwelt among his people. This is where the cloud of glory actually descended and filled the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided. Well, at the time of Jesus, and this is tradition, every Jew knew, I put that in quotes, that the temple had been built over a great natural stone slab, which they referred to as the foundation stone. Tradition held that this stone blocked the path to the underworld, thus the gates of Hades. Um, there's even talk about you know the waters of chaos within the earth being held at bay by this great stone slab. It's like and a cork in a bottle, to, right? You know, like the cork that's keeping yeah. the bottle from popping, and the yeah, champagne and, and of chaos all over the place. a slab that in then in Hebrew they referred to as the Eben Shatia, that this stone slab you know blocked the way to the underworld and kept the waters of chaos from rising up and taking over the world and all that. And so it was referred to as the foundation stone. So in other words then, when Simon says, I mean, when Jesus says to Simon, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's why these are tied together. Jesus is identifying the church as the new covenant temple of God, and he's saying to Peter that Peter is the rock upon which this temple will be built. Peter will serve as the foundation stone, holding back, as it were, the powers of hell, holding the powers of hell at bay. I mean, it's kind of an amazing It, it really is. And uh, I want to be careful about how much I say here because I don't want to get us too far off track. But Jesus also says, you know, destroy this temple and mm -hmm. I will, you know, build it back up in three days. So the body of Christ is the temple too. And so even by Peter being put in charge of the church, he's being put in charge of the body the of Christ, right? Uh, as St. Paul will uh, yeah. articulate so well. Uh, but there's another passage in this that that really, you know, you, you'll hear the argument, no, Peter's not the mm -hmm. rock, Peter's faith is the rock, or yeah. Jesus is the rock, and he rolls my blues away, as the old song goes. Uh, and there's, you know, all the psalms about God mm -hmm. is the rock. Uh, mm -hmm. But when mm -hmm. you look at this passage from St. Paul that I also never saw, 
in the same Ephesians chapter 2 that has the verse mm-hmm. most invoked for faith alone, right? Uh, not long after, it says Paul, and this is verse, uh, I guess, 20, um, he says that you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. There's mm-hmm. not some sense that it's either Jesus or it's Peter. Right. That's the rock. Yeah. Christ is the chief cornerstone, and these apostles are foundations. You even see that in the book of Revelation, right? Uh, this idea of the yeah. apostles is foundation. They're like the building blocks yeah. that Jesus uses to go because you don't have a building if you just have a cornerstone. You well, build around it. too, right? It, First Peter chapter two, we are stones being built up into a holy temple. the The thing is, the these images yeah. can can be used in multiple ways and in overlapping ways. Since you brought it up, in the Old Testament, I mean, God is the rock upon which we stand, and yet. Abraham is referred to as the rock in that passage that says, look to the rock from which you were hewn. So Abraham is the father of the Hebrew people. Um, he's the, the first great patriarch. He's also the rock. Well, yes, yes, the, the, the new covenant temple of God, the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, all his stones. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but Peter is also the foundation stone upon which the temple is being built. And we also are rocks stones being built up peter says first peter chapter 2 and into a living temple so ephesians chapter 2 verse 23 in him you are being built together to become yeah. a dwelling in which god lives by the spirit you, you, these don't yeah. and this yeah. goes back to a, just a way of seeing scripture that was unfamiliar to me i thought either the bible says this or it says this and there's so much yeah. both and going on both in the scriptures and, both layer and. upon layer upon yeah. layer so yeah, and the important thing here is that is that Jesus is speaking to Peter. I mean, all 12 are standing there, and yet, as we're going to see in a moment, he's using singular pronouns all the way through, singular second-person pronouns. He's saying Peter. So it is Peter who is presented as a prophet here. It's Peter who is presented as patriarch of the new covenant people of God in the role of in the role that Abraham and Israel had in the Old Testament. And now it is Peter who is presented as the foundation stone holding back the waters of chaos, the gates of hell not being able to prevail. But that isn't the end of it. Jesus goes on. And fourthly, Jesus also presents Peter here. This one's a really beautiful one. As Jesus presents Peter as the royal steward of the kingdom that he's come to establish, the chief steward of God's new covenant household. And we get this from verse 19 again. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Once again, Matt, this is language that takes us straight back into the Old Testament scriptures and the role of the chief steward in the household of King David. Um, In our government, I mean, we see the parallel. In our government, we have someone we call a president. But under the president, there's the chief of staff, who runs the office, who runs the scheduling for the president, he lets the people in, or he doesn't let them in. Okay, there's the president, but under him there is the chief of staff. Well, in ancient Israel, there was the king, and then under the king, there was the chief or the royal steward who was placed over the king's household. Um, This person, the chief steward, the royal steward, 
possessed the keys of the palace. It was he who could open or shut. It was he who was in charge. And we get a picture of this in Isaiah chapter 22. We read about someone who held this office whose name was Shebna. Because he was, but because he was proven to be unworthy, Shebna is being removed from his position and he's being replaced by another named Eliakim. And I want those listening or watching, just listen to how this office of chief, chief steward is described. Because, I mean, as a Catholic now, I have to admit, you read this and it sounds an awful lot like the way the Catholic Church or Catholics describe the Pope. Listen to how this chief steward is described in Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 22. In that day I will call Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your belt on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. He will be a father. What does Pope mean? Uh, Italian? Papa, right? Right. It's this, father. Is this, an, is this an Italian familiar familial kind of word for Papa. Well, he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. The chief, notice the chief steward is a father to the people of God under the king. He holds the keys to the palace. (laughs) He opens, he shuts, He has authority over the household. And when Jesus says to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. I mean, he is clearly referring back to the language here of Isaiah chapter 20. And he's clearly saying to Peter that in the kingdom that he has come to inaugurate, Peter is going to serve as the chief or royal steward over the household of God, over the new covenant household of God. And that's an amazing picture that I never heard or thought of until I began to study the Catholic point of view. I had never heard that passage from Isaiah until I started to read into the arguments. Um, you know, because in, in the case of Eliakim, um, he receives an actual key that he carries basically in his breast pocket, among other things. I mean, that's a mm. colloquial way of putting it. Peter does not receive an actual key. So whatever authority he's getting is a symbolic power over the new mm-hmm. household that so David I mean Jesus is son of David right um, yep and this is a kingdom that has come back in full force expanded and anew so if anything and you said this mm-hmm. all the time um, when we were talking about miraculous meals leading forward to the Eucharist the new covenant fulfillment is always bigger and better and bolder and spicier and new and improved compared to yes. the Old Testament image. Um, yeah, yeah. in the New Covenant, you, you take the Old Covenant image, which is a type, which is a shadow, and you just blow it up. So if there's a chief steward in the Old Testament, and we're going to see, we're going to look at this more in weeks to come, but this was a position, of course, in which there was succession. You know, uh, it, there wasn't just one chief steward. When that chief steward was, died or was removed, another one was put in his place. And so... But if there's a chief steward over the household of the kingdom of David, then how much more will there be a chief steward, a royal steward over the household of the king who is the son of David, the Messiah? Yeah, in, 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 in the new covenant. Okay, but Jesus isn't done yet. 
Number five, Jesus presents Peter as the chief rabbi of a new Israel. He presents Peter in the role of a chief rabbi, the chief rabbi of a new Israel. Verse 19 again, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In terms of the Old Testament parallel that we've just looked at from Isaiah 20, binding and loosing refers to the authority of the chief steward to open, to close, to lock, to unlock. But at the time of Jesus, these words binding and loosing had another meaning. They were used at the time to speak of the authority of the rabbis to render official judgments official interpretations of the Jewish law. And I want to read quickly a passage here for you, Matt. This is from the Jewish historian Josephus, first century historian. In his book, The Wars of the Jews, he refers to this rabbinical authority. Listen to what he says. And and now the Pharisees joined themselves to her to assist her in the government. And by her, he's referring to the Hasmonean queen, Alexandra, who reigned for a time in uh, during the first century BC. This is what he says. These Pharisees artfully insinuated themselves into her favor by little and little and became themselves the real administrators of public affairs. They banished and reduced whom they pleased. They bound and loosed at their pleasure. And to say all at once, they had the enjoyment of the royal authority. Okay? So this this language of binding and loosing doesn't just refer back to Isaiah and the chief steward's role. It was used at the time to talk about the authority of the rabbis, and it would be the special authority of the chief rabbi. As Israel had 12 sons, and from this come the 12 tribes of Israel. So think about it. Jesus has chosen 12 apostles through whom he is creating a new Israel, as it were. He's creating a new Israel, the spiritual Israel, the fulfillment of the typology of the Old Testament, the earthly Israel. And what Jesus is saying here to Peter is that within this new Israel, you will function as the chief rabbi, the chief binder, the chief looser. And here I wanted to bring out one little point about the the points in the direction of the papacy, because when you think about it, Notice that he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and that whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Just think think of the logic of this for, for a moment, Matt. Think of how this implies the binding nature of this binding and, and, and loosing that Peter will engage in. Because God cannot put his stamp of approval. He can't put his imprimatur on a lie. He can't put his stamp of approval, his stamp of approval on something that isn't true. And so by saying that whatever Peter binds on earth will be bound in heaven, it must be that the same Holy Spirit that revealed to Peter Jesus' true identity as the Messiah will guide Peter in his binding and his loosing and will keep him from error. It must be that Christ will be working through Peter. Something like that. You have any comment? Oh, I'm just going back to try and figure out, uh, you know, how it's all worded in the council from uh, Jerusalem. That very first time this comes up, this is not an arbitrary decision that everybody comes to. Um, not only is Peter, you know, saying mm-hmm. in communion with everybody else, uh, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Part of the decision-making process is does this line up, uh, you know, with 
things that we have already heard through the law and the prophets, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's mm-hmm. this sense that it's got to be in continuity with the speaking of the Spirit. It's got to be in continuity, um, you know, with everything that's, that's been taught to them so far and what they have mm-hmm. as Scripture. Uh, this is not, Peter, mm-hmm. you, have the, you have the floor, do anything you want to, right? Yeah, just say what you like. No, he's a steward. And it goes back to mm-hmm. this whole idea of... Mm-hmm. Even as a rabbi, he's a steward. He mm-hmm. cannot come up with anything new. He can only take what a rabbi could do, right? Which is take what's been handed to them and interpret it, preserve it, and pass it on. <coughs> yeah, render judgments. Render judgments. Yeah, yeah. Th- thanks, though. G- great point. Yeah, he's taking, like a rabbi, taking what is there and applying it. Um, so, so let's move on to the sixth one, though, and th- then we'll look at a few ob- objections so just think think of it so far and again i'm wondering what the 11 are thinking to themselves they're standing there in this crowd and suddenly jesus is looking directly into peter's eyes and he and he presents peter to the 11 and then to us he presents peter in the role of a prophet he presents peter in the role of a patriarch the patriarch of the new covenant people of god he presents peter as the foundation stone of the new covenant temple that is being built in his name He presents Peter as being in the role of the chief steward over the household of God, the royal steward. He presents Peter as being the chief rabbi who binds and looses. And then last of all, he's presenting Peter as the chief forgiver of sins. And again, it's by using the same language, the chief forgiver of sins, because while binding and loosing, it speaks of Peter's authority as chief steward and as chief rabbi, that is the chief teacher of Israel, In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, Jesus uses this exact language, binding and loosing, to refer to the retaining and forgiving of sins, okay? Whatever you loose on earth will be loose. That is, sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Sins you do not forgive, they are not forgiven. And again, this comes up in John chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, where Jesus in the upper room breathes on his disciples, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So we've got this parallelism in the New Testament between this language about forgiving sins and the language about binding and loosing that make it clear that they apply in both directions. And I want to make one more comment on this. Um, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is described as the one, oh, here, here's the both and again, Jesus is described as the one who has, quote, loosed us from our sins, unquote. And yet, in Matthew 9, verse 6, Jesus said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Remember the situation with the paralytic let down through the roof? And, um, and, he's, and Jesus said, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and walk. Well, Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus breathes on his apostles and he grants to them the authority on earth to forgive sins. And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 16 is simply that among his apostles, it is Peter who is, if you will, the chief forgiver of sins. And even back... This is contained. Right. And and even back, we're going to connect what's given to all the apostles and then what's given to Peter specifically, because that's, you know, often an objection. But even that that passage from John's gospel where Jesus breathes on them to tell them to receive the Holy Spirit, I mean, that's a direct parallel back all the way to the Garden of Eden and to Genesis chapter 2, right? 
when mm-hmm. God breathes into the nostrils of Adam, and then he puts him in charge of literally everything, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. There's this, this sense that it kind of goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden in many ways that uh, there's... And Adam is, if you look at the language of what's going on in in Genesis, and actually Dr. Bergsman put, points this out in his most recent book about the Old Testament roots of the priesthood, there's like a priestly thing that's function. being, you know, given to Adam in creation, and it's a priestly function to, you know, forgive and, and retain sins. Uh, there's you know, that would be so a, much in that, it. That'd be a great series for you and I to do to just to track the the concept of the priesthood through Scripture and into the early church. Well, luckily we don't have to because Doctor Bergsman always just wrote a whole brand new book about it. So, well, okay, you just tell everybody to. Well, we can just tell everybody to read books and not not do any. These episodes, episodes could be a lot shorter, journey. couldn't yeah. they? Okay. Well, look, I want to look at a few objections here as we wrap this together. Okay, some of the objections. Okay, first, it, it's typical for non-Catholics to argue. Jesus is not singling Peter out in this passage in Matthew 16. Uh, it, it, it's just that when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he, he was simply speaking for all the disciples. He's speaking for them. They all thought the same thing. Um, and and so, so Jesus is speaking to Peter, but he's speaking to Peter on behalf of all the disciples. He's not singling Peter out. And the only problem with that, and it's a, I mean, it's a major problem, it's a, it's a defeating problem, is that, is that although all the disciples are present here, Jesus uses the singular form, the second person pronoun throughout. I mean, blessed are you, singular in the Greek, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, singular in the Greek, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. I will give you, it's singular in the Greek, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you, it's a singular form in the Greek, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you, it's singular in the Greek once again. Loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so, no, for anyone who is not just really bending over backwards, committed to making sure that somehow the Catholic position or the Catholic teaching about Peter is not supported by this passage, it's clear that Jesus is singling Peter out from the others. It is Peter who is being presented here in the role of prophet, the role of patriarch, the foundation stone of the new temple being built, chief steward over the household of God, chief rabbi, chief forgiver of sins. It's Peter who's being presented. And you brought up the point of the the both and. And yes, it's true. All the apostles share in these in this authority, and all the apostles share in these charisms. But still, it is Peter who is being singled out. There's no doubt about it. And okay. with this, and we're going to get into this a lot more um, in coming weeks when we talk about, you know, can Peter pass on this office? Yeah. But it's clear from here, if he has the ability to loosen bind, then he also has the ability to give someone else his own authority. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, something that that is is off. It was completely missing from my understanding. Well, Jesus gave this authority to the apostles, but they couldn't have passed it on. Well, if Peter has the, if Peter can bind on earth that it is bound in heaven, whatever priestly office he has, he can invest someone else with authority. Yeah. Part of that authority means the ability to invest that authority in another person, just as Jesus yeah. invested his own authority yes. in Peter. Well, and the pattern we and the pattern we see from Scripture fits that the apostles. You know, ordaining their successors. Paul even refers to it directly in Timothy. Yeah, 
yeah, you know, the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands, and you go now and you preserve by the Holy Spirit everything I've given you. You do the same. You pass it on to other faithful men. So, yeah, all of that proceeds. Okay, another objection, which is very, very common, probably the most, to what we've said here goes like this. Even though Jesus says to Simon, Matt, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, the rock that Jesus is referring to here is not Peter, but Peter's confession of faith, or Jesus himself. You mentioned this a little while ago. Okay, in, in support of this objection, they will often point to the fact that the Greek word that Matthew uses for rock is Petra, that is on this rock, Petra, while the name Jesus gives to Peter is Petros, two different things they say. So that Jesus is essentially saying, Peter, okay, I'm looking at you, Matt, right here on Zoom right now. Um, you are Peter, and on this rock, you know, like like he looks aside to something else. Uh, Maybe or, or even looks aside rock, to the gigantic rock there at Caesarea yeah. Philippi, right? Yeah, and he says, you know, on this rock, meaning your confession of faith. Or he or points to himself. On this rock, yeah, to me. Okay, this objection is not difficult to answer either. First of all, in the Greek, the word that he uses, rock, Petra, on this rock I will build my church, it's a feminine noun, and therefore it has the feminine ending in Greek, which is the A ending or the alpha ending. And by the way, we still see this feminine ending in a number of names that we use to this day, like Sarah, the, the A ending, the A ending, Laura, Rebecca, it, it, This Angelina. is an issue in uh, Italian, Latin, Spanish very much yeah. uh, pre prevalent in those cultures and those languages in that historical context. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, my wife's name is Tina. Same kind of thing. Okay. Anyway, since Matthew, who's writing this in Greek, since Matthew wouldn't use the feminine form for a man's name, remember the name Peter had never been used before for a name. So, you know, Jesus is creating a new name for him. But Matthew wouldn't use the feminine, feminine form as he gives Peter his name. He's naturally going to add the masculine ending, which in Greece is, guess what? It's the O ending, O-S. They're Petros. So Petra is rock. Petros is the name that would, uh, would be used for a man. Petros, the masculine ending. Okay, but that, that's one answer. But secondly... Jesus most likely, and in fact, I think it's nearly certain that Jesus is speaking in Aramaic with his disciples. And in the Aramaic, the word for rock is kepha. Peter is, as you know, Peter is referred to as Cephas in the New Testament. He begins to be Paul called calls him Cephas. That. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is a transliteration of the Aramaic word kepha. And the point is this, in Aramaic, there is just one form here. Jesus would have said, Simon, you are kepha, and on this kepha, I will build my church. In fact, I think evidence that they definitely were speaking in Aramaic is the Bar Jonah, because in, in Hebrew it's Ben, you know, Simon Ben Jonah, son of Jonah. In Aramaic it's Bar, Bar Jonah. So that's another little hint that we have Aramaic behind here. But so Jesus would have said, Simon, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha I will build my church. There would have been no confusion. And Protestant scholars admit this. Here's D.A. Carson, one of the most important New Testament scholars living today. The underlying Aramaic is in this case unquestionable. That's what D.A. Carson says. And most probably, kepha was used in both clauses. You are kepha, and on this kepha. The Greek makes the distinction between Petros and Petra simply because it is trying to preserve the pun, 
which I didn't mention. And in Greek, the feminine Petra could not very well serve as a masculine name. Okay, uh, with this, okay, Petrus. So let's just take the example of Jesus clearly speaking in Aramaic that we have from the cross, right? He says, yeah. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Yeah. Um, and I'm, he pronounces it in probably a way very different than I just pronounced it. What he's doing is he's invoking the psalmist who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. Well, Matthew, um, is that in Matthew's? I can't even remember whose account of the, it, this is, uh, right? It's a couple of different accounts, but I can't remember which, which gospel accounts that shows up in. I don't remember now either. But it's a way of saying um, the crowd who speaks Greek or possibly Latin is saying, mm-hmm. I think he's calling Elijah. Well, why is that put in, why are Jesus's words put in Aramaic there and not, why doesn't the gospel writer just say, then Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in that particular instance? Well, because mm-hmm. he wants to show what Jesus was saying in Aramaic mm-hmm. so he can show that the people hearing thought he had called Elijah because they didn't understand the Aramaic, right? Uh, so, you know, it, it doesn't make sense in other contexts to necessarily write everything that Jesus is saying in, in Aramaic. It makes sense to mm-hmm. just translate it into the Greek because the gospel writers are writing in Greek. Um, and the gospel writers are writing for this to go out to the world, so they're not going to use just the, the language. That and the a Hebrew lot of their world was Hellenistic and Greek-speaking. Yeah. Okay, one more point out, Point on the rock. Uh, finally, this. Okay, making the rock refer to something other than Peter, you know, on this rock, meaning myself or something else, you know, Peter's confession of faith. It's just awkward. I mean, it, it, it's awkward in a passage in which Jesus is looking directly at Peter, speaking directly to Peter, and speaking specifically about the role that Peter is to play in the new covenant people of God. Every one of these six points is about the role that Peter will play Play. So it doesn't make sense to say, you know, for him to say, Simon, you know, you're like a prophet. Simon, you're going to be the foundation stone. Simon, you're going to be the patriarch. Simon, you're the rock. And on this over here, you know, you know, it's just it's just an awkward construction. Um, here's how Lutheran theologian Gerhard Meyer sums it up. So this is a Lutheran theologian. With all due respect to the reformers, we must admit that the promise in Matthew 16, 18, and 19 is directed to Peter and not to a Peter-like faith. The argument about the primacy of the Pope must be argued from a right basis, not from the wrong basis. So as a Lutheran, he's saying, look, I don't believe in the primacy of the Pope, but we need to argue against the primacy of the Pope on a right basis. And this is not a right basis. He says, we just have to, you know, with all due respect to the Reformers, we just have to admit that the promises here are directed to Peter. They're not directed to a Peter-like faith. It doesn't... It's not talking about I mean, something it, else. It, just keep on going down the list of things. I will give your faith the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever your faith binds on earth will be bound in heaven. You know, whatever yeah, your yeah, faith yeah. looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. No, Jesus, he's not giving this authority to an abstract concept. He's not, give, he's not investing yeah. authority in Peter's mood. He's investing authority in Peter. In Peter. Yeah, in Peter. Ring the bells. Okay, now, on this subject, Matt, okay, if we wrap this up, on the subject of Peter and the Paisley, there's a great deal more to be said, and there are a number of questions. What about the idea that Peter went to Rome? Is that true historically? Um, what about uh, the idea that he has successors? What's all this? Or that the Pope is the Bishop of Rome and that the bishops of Rome are the successors? There, there's so many things that go beyond what we're looking at here. Or the idea that the Pope is protected by the Holy Spirit from formally teaching 
heresy and leading the church astray. Although we saw a little hint of it here in this idea of binding and loosing, you know, today where, you know, I, I mentioned the fact that if God, I mean, if, if what is bound on earth is truly bound in heaven and God can't put a stamp of approval on a lie, then there has to be some protection going on. There has to be, it has to be that the Spirit is working through Peter so that what he says is true. We know that the um, Davidic kingdom was protected, that the branch, you know, was never completely dead, right? Because mm-hmm. it made it all the way down to Jesus. Even if it's a faint promise, the promise held, right? Yeah, the promise held. The promise okay, held. So, so there's a great deal. There's a lot more to be said. Um, but Matthew 16, I think, begins to explain to us or to answer the question we had of why Peter is treated as being so important in, uh, by the gospel writers and by the author of the book of Acts, Luke. It be- begins to give us an answer, and that is because it's to Peter that Jesus said these things, and we're going to look into this more deeply next week. And uh, we're looking forward to that. In the meantime, please do visit us at chnetwork.org, especially visit, uh, if you go to um, our homepage and click on connect, there's a bunch of different ways to connect with the Coming Home Network, but definitely click on the online community, or you can just type in community.chnetwork.org. We have all these kinds of discussions at greater length uh, pretty much all the time. Uh, at the Coming Home Network's online community. So come visit us. In the meantime, I'm Matt Swain. Thanks so much, Ken Hensley. We'll talk to you again next week. Good deal. Thanks, Matt.